Welcome, everyone, to episode three of Tales from Zarahemla. I'm here with my good, good friend, Jan Broberg. Hi, Jan. How you doing? Hey, Rick. I'm doing great. This is so fun to be here. Well, thanks for making time. I know you're a busy lady. Uh, Jan is uh, a marvelous producer of theater, and she just works tirelessly to get shows up and make sure that uh, we have theater in our communities because it's so important. Even during this pandemic, she's making sure we uh, we still tell our stories ah. in that way. So thank you. Um, Absolutely. Jan, I do love that. <laughs> I, I don't remember... When we met exactly, we did a couple shows many, many years ago. I think they were just some industrial films or something and met that way. But uh, but we've become yep. good friends and done a lot of projects together. Um, I remember yeah, we've had a great time. We've done live theater and film projects and all along the way. It seems like we, if we don't see each other for a period of time, we, we it circles back around. I think yeah. there's a reason for that <laughs> <laughs> because you too are a producer of live theater and right. we have definitely been able to collaborate and I love that part of our relationship. Well, if you're wondering uh, who Jan Broberg is, um, she's been an actress for, for many, many years and, and done uh, such a variety of things. She had a regular role on the television series Everwood for a few years. Um, yep, that and, was fun. <laughs> uh, I, I was excited to see you got a chance to work with Elijah Wood recently. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was a great experience. What a nice person he is and a fantastic actor but just so welcoming and warm. And uh, I met him in the, you know, in the makeup room, in the makeup chair. And we were getting ready for our first scene that I had had with him on the film. And uh, next thing I know, it's from the makeup chair onto a bed where he's got me hogtied <laughs> and he's about ready to scalp me <laughs> and uh, laying right on top of me. And I thought, wow, right this after is one way you. to get to really know your fellow <laughs> actor. <laughs> you know, no, no time to uh, mess around. And that yeah. was a really great experience on that film. There was a lot more to come after that. But that did happen to be the very first thing, the very first scene we filmed. Yeah. And it was a good experience having my own medic and my own makeup crew and special effects team to get it all just right. I had never really done a horror film, but I do have one that's out right now called Behind You, oh. and it's on Amazon. Um, so that's that's well, we'll just come that. out recently. So it's a good you time know, I, for this I think most. <laughs> I think most people don't don't realize that that challenge that film actors face is that we don't do things in order, and often you'll show up first day, you've just met your fellow actors, and you have to do the climax of the story that that day, and that's uh, that's challenging. That's right. tough. Uh, we're in theater. <laughs> we'll, re we'll rehearse for six weeks first and find the arc of the story, and it all makes a little more sense that way. But. Um, yeah, that, that actually is is probably why we love live theater, because we do get to be very, um, very close and connected to our fellow yes. fellow actors and the crew and the director. And there is a, a beautiful family that that seems to come out of every live right. theater performance. But I love doing film acting, too. But sure. I, I think the other has a lot of. Uh, a lot of extra perks. <laughs> and I, I remember uh, that you fairly recently did a, an episode of Criminal Minds. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was a really full circle um, moment for me in my, in my career. I played the mother of a missing child 
uh, a son who had been missing for about three years. And then they find him. And as he is brought back, um, he won't talk. And I'm so devastated. He's in front of me and not speaking. And I just had so many of the same um, emotions and feelings and understandings because of what I had been through as a child and the brainwashing that I had suffered. And so the whole thing, just the fact that I was playing the mother of this missing child and what this child had experienced and was going through and what I was trying to draw out of him um, as I you know, welcomed him home without him speaking really at all, it was very um, palpable to my own life experience. So it was a really, uh, it was an amazing, it was an amazing shoot for me. And of course, again, some great actors that I got to work with on that show as well. Well, and and that leads right into, uh, you know, you may have seen Jan in many things and, uh, and she certainly had some prominence, especially uh, in this state. Uh, but uh, but you really came to national prominence recently with the uh, the documentary "Abducted in Plain Sight," which tells the story of your childhood and the challenges you faced. Yeah, that was an amazing um, experience as well. I always felt in my heart and gut that I needed to share my story. Since I was about thirty, I had tried to you know, speak for different groups and organizations, police departments, uh, counselors at schools, social workers, mental health care professionals, anybody that needed someone to come and talk about um, something that might save another child from from sexual abuse. I was the person that, that wanted to go and stand up and talk about it, but always knowing that if I could share the story on a on a larger scale that I could help more people, I hoped. And so when this um, documentary was, was made and it came out and went viral on Netflix, I was given many more opportunities to speak out on various talk shows and in various locations across the country. And my mother and I have just completed, um, a new book that we're going to be releasing soon um, because I think people don't realize that that four out of 10 children are sexually abused or assaulted by someone they know mm. or love or trust or all three. It's not usually a scary stranger. And it's something that I, I feel we don't want to really look at because it's so close to home. Right. And yet that is where the real problem is. And I've often said if they were big red flags, of course, our parents and people would protect us, but they aren't. It's a very uh, subtle, like a blue sound wave that, that, that might make you think that something's off. But then you, know, you just dismiss that feeling or whatever. You don't really look because you can't believe that it could be your best friend or your, the you know, leader at your church or somebody that got teacher of the year last year at your school or, you know, a prominent businessman or, you know, a brother or sister, um, a grandparent. I've heard every story and it's just heartbreaking and we have to do a better job at making this movement happen for our children to protect our children and our grandchildren from the abuse that they suffer at the hands of people that they know, love, and trust, and so that's been a big part of my um, of my 
you know, as late um, in my life, uh, what do you call that kind of your purpose? Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I always take the opportunity if I can to share my story. And that's the whole point, right? Yes. We share stories because it helps us empathize. It helps us understand. It helps educate us. It helps raise awareness. And that's uh, the beauty of storytelling. So, well, you know, I, lucky I, me that I had what? Sorry. No, go I ahead, was just Rick. Gonna, I, I understand that there's a, a new project in the works that will help you tell your story. Oh, there is. Yeah. I actually have just signed some, some good uh, paperwork there that, uh, that NBC universal. Um, I'm working with a great writer and producer there that, um, we are working on a limited series. So maybe a eight to 10 episode, hopefully mm -hmm. so that we can get the whole story. Cause yeah, my story was left unfinished. It was very shocking and, and it, it, did a, a good job at getting people to kind of wake up and pay attention, but yeah. my story wasn't finished. I have wonderful parents, wonderful sisters, friends, neighbors. Yeah, um, we need we need more than the shock. We need to go on the journey yes, with you, right? Exactly, yeah. and that's where I'm hoping that this limited series will take us on a journey so that everyone can relate to my my parents' experience, to my experience, because we were in just a very normal, almost a town like Zarahemla. It was just an idyllic, <laughs> um, you know, neighborhood and family. And for those first 12 years of my life, um, I couldn't have asked for a more um, wonderful um, life. And so I think I kind of had a lot to go back to. So I survived and thrived. And now I've felt the need that telling the story in a more full way will help others see themselves in, in the same shoes, you know, as they're reflected back right. through my family's story. And hopefully that will protect many children from experiencing abuse or help others who have gone through it to heal and to find hope and a path forward. So that's the hope. <laughs> well, that's wonderful, Jan. And, um, Speaking of Zarahemla, I think we should uh, we should get right to our story and uh, give it a listen, okay. and then uh, then we'll chat again after if that's okay. All right. So wonderful. Here we go. And now the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. Merrill Hafen was in full campaign mode now. Some days it all seemed rather silly, considering the circles she had moved in when she was in Washington, D.C. After all, Zarahemla had a population of just about 600 people. The mayor's salary was less than $9,000 a year. Not that Merrill needed the money. In fact, she was thinking of making it a campaign pledge to forego her salary. She had always been comfortable. Her grandfather, James B. Hafen, had made billions with his medical instrument inventions and real estate savvy. She didn't inherit some vast fortune. Most of it went into charitable foundations. But she did receive a trust for her education and to help her establish herself in life, and it was a generous one. Merrill truly wanted to make a difference while she was here. She had committed to herself and to the community that she would make Zarahemla her home, at least for the four-year term of the mayor's office. She would also open a small law firm and begin her practice. 
Merrill knew that the local ranchers and the Utah Department of Agriculture could sometimes butt heads over land use regulations and water rights. There were even bigger fights with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but she would start at the state level. She wanted to get better communication going, so she called on her friend, Commissioner Luann Abels of the UDA, to come with her on a tour of the local ranches just to talk to the ranchers and get to know them. Not only would this garner some votes, she hoped, but would really help her understand the needs of her constituency, should she be elected. Harold Benyon, Huck to his friends, has always been a romantic. Huck is also an optimist, a dreamer, and a self-described nincompoop. His analysis of his nincompoopery is based on the fact that he never seems to learn from his many experiences of being made the fool due to his unrelenting idealism. Huck's mother is perhaps the principal source of his positivity. She has always believed in Huck, and no matter how old he gets, she tells him that he will yet do great things with his life. Well, Mama is sick now. And many times, when Huck visits, Grace Benyon is confused and doesn't seem to really know him. Nothing in his life has caused him so much fear. He feels lost without his connection to his mother. Oh, he knows, intellectually, that it is all part of the journey of life. He also knows that when she passes, it won't be forever. He'll see her again. But despite his rational considerations... A ball of fear sits in his chest every day as he faces her loss. Grace Benyon comes from the Mangum family of Alton over in Kane County. Grace is a direct descendant of William Taylor Hedge, a great pioneer, engineer, and captain in the Utah Territorial Militia. While building the road through Johnson Canyon, he was hit by an arrow from a Paiute Indian. He survived his wound and on his own visited the tribe, returned the arrow, spent enough time with them to learn their language, and became a great friend to the tribe. He also befriended the Hopi Indians. Huck grew up hearing the stories of adventure and bravery lived out by his great-great-grandfather and spent much of his childhood reenacting those great adventures. But ultimately, Huck's life seems pretty tame. Huck also has another problem— He is intensely shy. Beyond his timidity, he has a great gift for sticking his foot in his mouth. Despite these hindrances, Huck has never lost heart, at least not completely, and his shyness has never stopped him from following his romantic whims. A dozen years ago, Huck proposed to Laney Folsom from St. George. They had met a few years earlier at a youth conference there, and Huck was smitten. He stayed in touch with her by sending her poems that he wrote at night. He knew that she found them a bit corny, but he wasn't daunted in his wooing. Huck had an old 72 Chevy pickup that his Uncle Gary gave him when he was 17. With the freedom that his truck afforded him, Huck would get up at 4 a.m. in order to get his ranch chores done by 7 on a Saturday morning, drive the hour and a half over to St. George to find Laney, still sleeping, something he couldn't comprehend. He had never slept past seven o'clock in his whole life. Throw pebbles at her bedroom window until she awoke. Her window was on the first floor, so tapping would have made more sense, but throwing pebbles was more romantic. Sing to her until she begged him to stop, 
take her out to breakfast, and then for a drive through Zion's or up to Cedar Breaks, take her on a hike, then break out a picnic lunch that his mom had prepared. Laney would laugh and smile her incredible smile, and she kept up on the hikes, which impressed Huck tremendously. Huck feared that he would lose her to time and circumstances when he served his church for two years in the Ohio-Cleveland Mission. But, though she rarely responded to his weekly tomes while he was away, she was still available when he got home. Huck knew that his proposal had to be something unique, something romantic, something grand. So he enlisted the help of his friends, chief among them his pal Daryl Grimshaw, who was an amateur filmmaker. They worked on the project for weeks. Finally, everything was in place, and they were ready to mobilize. Huck began by sadly informing Laney that he would have to cancel their Friday night date because the Forest Service, for which he was a trainee, had changed his schedule, and he was assigned to act as a guide for a special stargazing event in Bryce Canyon. He promised to make it up to her next week. Huck hated lying to Laney, but he thought that in this case his lie was justified. Within minutes after Huck broke their date, Laney received a call from one of her high school girlfriends, Chelsea, asking her to join a group of them to go see the new Will Smith movie, Hitch, that was playing on Friday night. But they had to be early because they wanted to see the trailer for the upcoming Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Friday night at the movie theater, Chelsea insisted on buying the popcorn and told Laney to go sit down. Laney's other friends were giggling a little too much and seemed to be hiding something from her, but her pleadings for information were to no avail. Chelsea entered the theater with a large bucket of popcorn and drinks just as the lights were dimming for the previews. The film started rolling, and there on the screen was Huck with his friend Adam, who starred in all their high school plays, sitting at Pizza Lane Bowling Alley talking about the girls and their life. Adam said something about how you should never let the good ones get away, then he got up to bowl. Huck, watching Adam take his stance, suddenly blurted out that he had blown it. He loved his girl and should be with her tonight, but he was too scared to tell her how he felt, so instead he had told her that he had to work so that he could come and get some advice from Adam. Adam stopped mid-stride, set his bowling ball back on the return carousel, and punched Huck in the arm. Stop being a wimp, Adam said. If you want her, you have to tell her. You're right, Huck said rather melodramatically. Huck had not been in any plays in high school. I'll go tell her right now. The camera followed Huck out of the bowling alley to Farnsworth's Market two doors down, where he grabbed a bouquet of roses and threw some money at Lavana, the checkout girl. Next came a close-up on Huck's determined face, then an obvious handheld bouncing shot as the camera led Huck across the street and to the end of the block where the Zarahemla movie theater is located. The camera then reversed to a medium shot of Huck reaching in his pocket and pulling out a ring box. Another close-up on his face showed his excitement and determination. Then came a long shot of him entering the front doors of the theater. Laney was dazed by it all and had not quite put it all together before the lights began to brighten, the film came to a stop, and Huck, 
wearing the same clothes as in the film, flowers and ring box in hand, came down the aisle, knelt at her feet, and asked her to be his wife. The rest of the audience inhaled and waited in silent expectation. It then all flooded over Laney. The excitement of it, the pressure of it, the humor in it, Huck was pretty funny, and the terror of it. But what was there to do except shout yes and kiss her new fiancé? Two years later, Laney gave birth to their first daughter, Emma. Two years after that, another daughter came along, Rebecca. But 18 months later, Huck woke one morning to find the baby crying and no Laney in sight. She had left a note saying that she couldn't do it anymore. She felt like she didn't know herself, so she had to go find herself. Huck didn't understand. What did it mean to go find yourself? He believed the only way to know yourself was to choose to be who you wanted to be. Love was supposed to be simpler, and happy endings were supposed to be possible. Huck left the Forest Service to focus full-time on the family ranch. Mom helped with the girls for quite a while until it became too hard for her. Emma is ten now and Rebecca eight. While they still need supervision, they have become very adept at fixing their own breakfast and getting themselves ready for school. After school, they help lead the cows to another paddock while Dad checks the water gate and moves the irrigation pipes. As harvest comes on, they help with the canning while Dad handles the hay sales and plows the fields in preparation for winter. During the winter months, while there are still plenty of daily chores, Dad has more time to spend with them in the evenings. He reads to them. Great stories like To Kill a Mockingbird, Little Britches, Little Women, Everything by Roald Dahl, and Because the Girls Insist, the Harry Potter series. All are stories that don't shy away from the trials, fears, and disappointments in life, but which also never let the reader despair, for there is always hope that life will get better, or, at the very least, bring the joy and satisfaction that the character's sacrifices warrant. Now and then, when Huck has a little time on his hands to think about himself, he does become intensely lonely. But Huck doesn't allow himself to wallow in it. After all, he does have a lot of joy in his life. Looking into the hopeful faces of his girls always brings joy, and he never resents any of the sacrifices he has had to make for them. They instead give him purpose. He still dreams of the ideal and never gives up on it. Deputy County Sheriff Todd Jenkins had a knot in his stomach. He felt like a hypocrite. No, worse, he knew he was a hypocrite. Beyond his duties as sheriff, Todd had been called as a bishop four years ago. In his church, bishops were laymen who served without pay and so had to continue their income-providing careers as well. Being a bishop had consumed his life. He had suddenly been asked to be a spiritual guide and mentor, a shepherd, over everyone in the town. Todd felt wholly inadequate. But he had never refused a calling from the Lord, so he accepted. It seemed that every spare minute Todd was meeting with his counselors to make a plan to help someone in trouble or someone in need. Every week he met with people that he had grown up with 
or people who had been his teachers and mentors, or people who were giants in the community, to hear their personal struggles, their confessions, their pleas for help or forgiveness. He quickly learned that empathy and compassion were the chief godlike traits that he needed to do the work. And his compassion and empathy had grown immensely during these four years. His love for the people of the community was profound. That's what made this duty as sheriff so difficult. He was about to catch John in the act of selling drugs. Todd had been in the sheriff's department for 18 years now. His wife, Rachel, was a mother of four and a homemaker. Rachel, just recently, had started working as a pet sitter. There were lots of tourists coming to the national parks that traveled with their pets, but once here found that they didn't always want to take their pets along on every hike. Sometimes they wanted to enjoy a nice restaurant or a play over in Cedar City. And so Rachel started advertising her services, and lo and behold, she got pretty consistent work during the summers. The extra income helped. Todd's salary had just barely gotten them by all these years. Todd loved Rachel deeply, and Rachel had always supported him in doing things of good report. For the past ten years, Todd and Rachel have kept a secret. A secret that could get Todd fired and could destroy the trust of their children, the members of the church, and the rest of the community. Huck Benyon remembered reading a story once about a rancher that has just a few head of cows on a ranch where crops are the real money source. A young man, fresh from agricultural school, drives by, sees that the rancher's methods are antiquated, and stops to offer advice. I can teach you a much more efficient way of raising cattle, the young man says. The rancher just slowly takes the piece of straw that he'd been chewing on from his mouth and answers, Son, I'm not raising cows. I'm raising boys. Huck loves that story and has dreamed for many years of the same thing happening to him. He is ready with his response to a similar question from some city slicker. But so far, it hasn't happened. Huck knows now that in his marriage, he was in love with the idea of a perfect marriage, not in love with the reality of it. He accepts much of the blame for its failure. He is determined not to make the same mistake again, but to accept the flaws of life and people around him while still striving for the ideal. He knows, too, that he is still a dreamer and sometimes swims in the romanticism of his notions until the reality of the situation slams him back to earth. That's why, even though he has had a couple of dreams about the new mayoral candidate, Merrill Hafen, in which she embraces his life, his optimism, his children, his quirkiness, and him, he won't allow himself to entertain the notion seriously. After all, he is five or six years older than she. He is a rancher in the middle of nowhere Utah, while she is a sophisticated woman of the world. While he is strong from ranching, he doesn't have the physique or the panache that he is sure she has seen in some of the young lawyers and politicians she has worked with back east. And what young, smart, beautiful woman wants to saddle herself to a man that already has two children? No matter. Life goes on. 
and he will squeeze joy out of whatever life brings him. The first time Todd encountered the mysterious John, he assumed he was a homeless vagrant. John was dirty, unshaven, carrying a backpack, and walking along Highway 89 near the Red Canyon Trailhead. Todd stopped and talked with him. John wasn't completely unfriendly, but certainly guarded. Todd didn't know if he was that way with people in general, or if it was because Todd was law enforcement. He saw that John had a nice, if filthy, pickup truck that he was walking back to, and some rather nice camping gear. He observed John often after that, hiking and carrying a rather full pack when he came out of the wilderness. He soon discovered that John had a nice cabin over near Tropic, so he certainly had some money. But John didn't seem to have a job. He just went hiking every day, and Todd was convinced that he was bringing something out of the wilderness. But Todd had no cause to stop him or search him or his pickup. But then Todd saw John on the corner of 2nd North and Main in Zarahemla, passing a packet of something to a tourist and taking money in return. Todd's inner alarm bell began clanging. His suspicions were heightened when he talked to Rachel one night about John, and she said that she knew John from college, John Horazam, a loner and an atheist that loved the Utah wilderness and a nice guy. They used to go on hikes together in college, but then he got into drugs and they lost touch. Yep, Todd was going to have to set up a sting and catch John at whatever he was up to. Rachel Jenkins began suffering over a decade ago with a rare form of gastroparesis. Her stomach wouldn't digest all the food properly. She had almost constant nausea, vomited many times a day, and had trouble keeping down even liquids. Doctors put her on Reglan, Compazine, Zofran, and Erythromycin, which it turns out she is allergic to. After one dose, she developed a rash all over her body, which kept her itchy and swollen for over a month. Nothing really relieved her symptoms, which became debilitating. She couldn't take care of her family like that. She prayed constantly for help. Then one day, she found another sufferer online that told her that the only thing she found that could help was marijuana. Todd was surprised at how unabashed Rachel was in wanting to find some and try it. The laws against cannabis in Utah were strict, and they had both grown up with a belief that illicit drugs were not good for your body and that your body is a temple. But Rachel's suffering was so great that Todd soon was persuaded to the idea that perhaps it is just another form of medication, that any medication can be used in excess or for the wrong reasons, but that doesn't mean that it can't be used for good. One of Rachel's college friends had been pretty wild in school, so she thought maybe Anna would be able to lead her to a source. It turned out that Anna and her husband, Trevor, were living in Southern California, and that Trevor made a pretty good income from growing pot there. In fact, Trevor had created several different strains that had varying potencies and effects. One strain was designed specifically for nausea and had only a small potential for making someone high. Rachel went to visit and tried a sample. She had never smoked anything in her life, so the initial burning to her lungs and the stink of the weed was wholly unpleasant. 
But a few moments later, she began to weep with relief. The nausea was gone. And as the day progressed, she found that the efficiency of her digestive system seemed to improve. Trevor didn't want to gouge her and gave her a friendship price, but he still needed to cover his overhead. Rachel came home with a six-month supply that cost her a thousand dollars. It came out of their savings, which Todd wasn't happy with. But when he saw the liberation in his wife's face and body, he just said a prayer of thanksgiving and didn't argue over the money. Since that time, Rachel has planned a trip to visit her friends in California twice a year. The money has just become part of a tightening budget. Every evening after the kids are asleep, Todd takes Rachel for a drive up the canyon so that she can take her medication. The smell and the smoke are highly unpleasant to Todd and usually send him into coughing fits, but he will do anything to relieve his love's suffering. They air the car out as they drive home, spraying the interior with an air sanitizer and each other with Febreze to make sure that kids and colleagues don't suspect. So, here is Todd, bishop and deputy sheriff, with a pot-smoking wife, himself supporting what is technically an illegal practice, about to pull off a sting on someone whom he thinks is selling the stuff. But there is a difference between using it for medical needs and profiting from selling it for recreational use, isn't there? And whether he agrees with a law or not, he has sworn to uphold it. So hypocrisy be damned, he had a job to do. Merrill and Commissioner Abels drove up to the door of the Benyon Ranch House unannounced. At the door, Merrill apologized for coming without notice, but hoped that Huck might have a few moments to discuss any concerns he might have with Commissioner Abels. A wide-eyed Huck seemed nervous but pleased and invited them to walk around the part of the ranch where the barn and other outbuildings were and to see the livestock as well as one of the alfalfa fields. He was glad to point out his methods for rotating crops and the care with which he checked the water gate every day to make sure it was flowing and to divert it back to the main stream when he wasn't irrigating. Huck couldn't help himself. He kept catching glimpses of Merrill and determined that his dreams had not done her justice. He realized suddenly that Commissioner Abels was asking questions. He answered them easily and honestly, but then she asked, have you ever thought of increasing your number of cattle? Since your crop rotation leaves large fallow fields every year, why not be more efficient by grazing more cattle on them? This was it. This was the moment Huck had been waiting for, a chance to impart some homegrown wisdom, a justification for his style of ranching and living, and also, in the back of his mind, a chance to impress the beautiful Merrill. He grabbed a piece of straw, stuck it in his mouth, chewed on it for a moment, contemplating what she had said, removed the straw, using it as a pointer to emphasize his acumen, and said, Ma'am, I'm not raising boys, I'm raising girls. It took him almost two full seconds for Huck to realize that he had said it wrong, but by then, the look of confusion had left the women's faces, and they were giving each other a look that said, let's pretend he didn't say something completely irrelevant and immaterial and just nod politely. 
Huck was so embarrassed that he didn't try to correct his mistake, just turned away and started walking toward the barn. Would you like to see our milk storage facility? was all that he could muster. Sheriff Jenkins had enlisted his executive secretary at church, Blaine Packer, to help him reel in John. Blaine had kind of a wild appearance. He was a big man with a reddish-gray beard, a descendant of Porter Rockwell, and as gentle a soul as you might ever meet. Todd dressed him in some faded denim, gave him a headband, and told him to try and engage John at the corner where he seemed to do business. He even wired Blaine so that he could record the conversation. Sure enough, John showed up at his usual spot and began engaging passersby. Blaine Packer was loving this game, but still approached John with some trepidation. He asked him what he was selling, and John explained that he was a fossil hunter and had some examples that he'd found in the local wilderness if Blaine were interested. Blaine knew that this wasn't what Todd was after, so he improvised and, in a hoarse whisper, very close to John's face, said, I'm looking for the hard stuff. Can you help me out? John looked around for listening ears, then gestured for Blaine to follow him over to his case that he had hidden behind the nearby park bench. He pulled out a black felt pad and then opened a little drawstring bag and poured out a handful of beautiful red stones in varying sizes. What are they? asked Blaine. John explained that he had found a place to mine his own red barrel, and the stones ranged in price from $20 to $7,000. Most people thought the only place to find quality red barrel was in the Wawa Mountains over near Beaver, but he had proved them wrong. He didn't trust the government, so he hadn't registered his claim and intended to just keep its location secret. Blaine, unsure what to do next, turned to where he knew Todd was watching and listening and shrugged his shoulders. John saw this and immediately wrapped up his stones and began to pack everything for a quick getaway when Todd caught up to him. Todd assured John that all was well. He was just relieved that John wasn't selling something more illicit. He recommended that John protect his claim by filing. He assured him that there is a process for filing on federal land, if that's where his claim was, and told him to be careful out there. That night, Todd drove his lovely Rachel up the canyon so that she could self-medicate. He had to stick his head out the window several times to breathe clearly, a self-accepted penance for his hypocrisy. But the air outside was somehow sweeter tonight. It smelled like home. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend. Well, Jan, tell me what you thought. Well, I loved it because I want more. And that's (laughs) how I know I really got involved. (laughs) I like these characters and I like, 
what I don't like is not knowing the end of the story, but I never read the end of a book first. So I just have to be patient. That would be yeah. terrible. I want, I want to go on the journey. I don't really want to know the end of the story as yeah. long as it's happy. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway, and not that I'm trying to nudge you in any yeah. certain direction, but I really, really was uh, excited to hear how, well, excited and then feeling a little, disheartened when when is it huck is that the name yeah yeah no yeah huck yeah huck Huck. when he when he goes to the trouble of making this movie to propose to his first (laughs) wife i was like oh please let someone do that for me that's what i want (laughs) (laughs) somebody that's that romantic and creative there's a a bit of me in huck because i i'm a romantic at heart but uh sometimes (laughs) you 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 can't just base your decisions on romance you know you've got to Consider other I things, know, so. but I don't know. I'm I'm definitely a diehard romantic yeah. as well. So I loved that. I felt really bad when she left. I'm so happy he has some beautiful daughters because mm-hmm. I grew up in a family of three girls. So much to relate to. And now that there's an opening with Meryl, uh-huh. maybe I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> hurry, let's get goes. the next part written. Yeah. <laughs> And I really liked the other characters, many of the other ones that were in the story. I liked Todd and his wife, Rachel. And again, Mm -hmm. I could relate to that, you know, wondering, like, is there a hard line between, you know, this, this right and wrong and, 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 and yet we have to take care of. I, I just thought that was a really complex um, story where you've got the, the leader yeah. of the church and the, the law enforcement leader of the town um, also having a secret um, with his with his wife and her and her medication that, you know, has given her some relief, which, of course, I think is is awesome and i don't know how it's gonna all pan out at small towns they can be very judgmental but so far i'm certainly not judging any of them i'm just excited to hear what comes next (laughs) well i I thought it was just an interesting moral dilemma for him to face and i wasn't trying to make any political stand or you know take uh, or push people to one belief or the other just i just wanted people to go on his journey and the struggle uh you know the decisions he has to make and so. Well, and those are the best kinds of stories because we all, that is the struggle. That is the human condition. You want me to tell you whether Huck and Merrill get together? No, no. No, I want you to write it. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I have no idea. I mean, no I hope idea. they do. But it, yeah, no, no, it's all good. You're, no you're doing just great. No, I'm just ready for episode we'll four. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so what do you think, uh, any criticisms on uh, what I could do? Let's see. Um not really. I, I mean, the only thing that I know I grappled with with my own story was when you tell a story and it's precisely about a, a certain group of people and people have, you know, preconceived ideas about what it is to grow up in a small town, grow up mm-hmm. in a small town that's primarily Mormon. Um, and just wondering if people might need some kind of a dictionary for some of the terms. Well, and I, you know, I realize that uh, hopefully I have a lot of listeners that are from outside of this culture, and I want to, I want the stories to be universal. And I, I know that there are things that are strange. There are things that are strange in every culture. And uh, I remember listening right. to Garrison Keillor's stories for many years about Lake Wobegon, and that sort of inspired me to start these stories, actually. 
And uh, he talked about their culture and their religion and some of their traditions were strange to me, but that only intrigued me. It didn't didn't put me off from the stories. I wanted to understand their lives better. And I saw the universality in their struggles to to what was happening in my own culture. A great example of this, I remember uh, reading about the movie Fiddler on the Roof when it first came out, that in Japan, people were lined up for blocks to get into that movie. Uh, they were hmm. oversold. They couldn't fit everybody in the in standing room only to wow. watch this. And when people were interviewed about it, they said, this is our story, and, which is wow. shocking because it's a very Jewish story. And yet they saw very universal themes in it and said, no, that's, that's us. That's what we go through. And so I, I oh. hope that happens to my listeners as well, that they can, doesn't matter the setting, uh, it could be set anywhere in the world in a small town and uh, we would see, see right. the same types of people and the same struggles and, uh, and to share the traditions that go on in this culture, uh, I think is just an important methodology for telling the story. Um, it makes, gives, right. gives it some no. authenticity. So. Yeah, that's really good. No, I, I, I can see that because honestly, I, I can see myself, you know, learning things new about a culture or something, but really the, the through line is because I relate to their struggle or their, their um, experiences. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I had a, a pretty high level manager friend in LA that I had talked about before my documentary ever actually materialized that I wanted to tell my story, you know, a a film or a series or a documentary. I didn't know how, but I just felt like there was a lot of, you know, power in being able to get it out to a a bigger group of people that way. And I said, but I don't want somebody to like tune it out because, you know, it was, it was this, you know, Mormon family in Idaho and obviously they were just stupid. And I, you know, this would never happen to me. I said, I'm worried about that. And she said, Oh no. She said, just because you were in a smaller community and you were raised in, you know, this, in the Mormon culture and church, she said, that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's unrelatable. She said, I just find that to be very interesting. I think it makes, makes your story more relatable because we all grew up some way that was different from somebody else. And we, we want to know, we want to enter what that was like. And so that's really, that's really true. I think what you said that the people you have an interest in something you don't know or you haven't experienced, but there's always a through line that keeps us relatable and relating to the characters. And, and so that's why I guess I love to tell stories and obviously you do too. And (laughs) you're very good at it. So I think you ought to keep calling Richard bug. (laughs) Thank you, Jan. Well, listen, thank you. Thank you again for joining me and making the time. And, uh, uh, I know well, we're going to we're going to keep doing projects together. Uh, I'm looking forward to some okay. of those coming up. Um, Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks. Yeah, and thank you uh, to my listeners. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this week's story and this week's chat. And uh, please tune in next time. And please uh, find a way to tell your stories. Thanks so much. Bye bye. <laughs>